in our last episode, Vercingetorix thought he had Julius Caesar on the ropes. And in many ways, he did. So Vercingetorix gathered his 15,000 cavalry and attacked the lumbering Roman column. But war is fickle, and so is fortune. Julius Caesar and the Romans, who looked to be on the ropes, suddenly hit back and hit back hard. Vercingetorix lost that engagement and fled to the hilltop town of Elysia. No doubt he intended to make a similar stand as he had at Gergovia. But Elysia isn't Gergovia. The terrain is different at Elysia, and Caesar quickly notices this. And, this time, Caesar has all ten of his legions with him. So Caesar surveys the scene and quickly decides to circumvallate all of Elysia. Now, circumvallation is when the Roman army would build a rampart and other fortifications to surround a besieged city. This stopped food from getting in and people and information from getting out. And this tactic wasn't unique to Caesar, it was a common Roman military tactic. What was unique to Caesar was the sheer scale and audacity of his fortifications at Elysia. And having been to the site of ancient Elysia myself, I can tell you that this circumvallation would take a Herculean effort. There's a reason Caesar says he encourages men for the task ahead. The circumvallation of Elysia was a monumental endeavor. I have looked at many maps of the fortifications Caesar and his troops built around Elysia. And let me tell you, none of them do any justice to the scale of the project. The area the Romans circumvallate is massive. The ramparts stretch for 11 miles in total. And that's less than half of the eventual fortifications that will be built. We'll talk more about that later. And you may think that you can imagine that sort of distance in your mind's eye. I certainly thought that I could. But when I got to Elysia in person and I began to hike the battlefield, I realized just how wrong my mental image or map of this siege was. The image I had in my head was far too small. Elysia is a hill surrounded by other hills. And the word hill is tricky because hills come in a vast array of sizes. Well, these hills, including Elysia, are large. Far larger than I ever pictured. And when I say large, I don't necessarily mean that they were tall. You would never mistake these hills for mountains. But you might say it's their volume that makes these hills large, in that they take up a large amount of space. Many of the hills are quite long. And when I looked at the hill Elysia sits on from the vantage point Julius Caesar saw it from, building a rampart and other fortifications around the entirety of this hill looked like a near impossible task to me. Certainly a backbreaking one at the very least. But maybe that's why I'm not a Roman proconsul with ten legions under my command. Caesar knows the abilities of his army like the back of his hand. Gone are the days when these Roman soldiers were green troops, unsure if they could trust Caesar, their commander. They're hardened veterans now, 
with great expertise in building fortifications and great trust in their proconsul, Julius Caesar. So what looks like an impossible task to me looks doable to them. And after you are finished listening to this episode, or perhaps beforehand could be better, I encourage all of you to go to my YouTube channel, Trevor Travels, where I filmed my exploration of the battlefield of Elysia. The link to the episode is in the show notes of this episode. And in watching that video, it will really help you understand what the terrain looked like at Elysia, what Caesar's fortifications looked like, and the scale of these hills and therefore the scale of the tasks Caesar and the Romans faced in circumvallating Elysia. The terrain at Elysia becomes pivotal in how this battle plays out. Like I said, Elysia is a town on top of a large hill. And on either side of this hill flow two small rivers or streams. And beyond these two streams, the Elysia Hill, it has an actual name in French, but to avoid me butchering that pronunciation, I'll simply call it the Elysia Hill, it is surrounded on three sides by other hills of similar size. This makes it so that there are valleys between these other hills and the hill Elysia sits on. And the two streams flow through these valleys on either side of Elysia. Now, I said Elysia is surrounded on three sides by other hills. On the fourth or western side of Elysia, and between the two streams, is an open, relatively flat plain. And if this all sounds confusing to you, don't worry, I'll post a map of the battlefield on our various social media channels, and the cover photo of this episode, if all went well, should also be a map of Elysia and the battlefield. Now, Elysia itself is a town of the Mandubii tribe. The Mandubii are a minor Gallic tribe, and I'm sure to them, it was a tragic twist of fate that they found themselves at the heart of a struggle between these two titans, Julius Caesar and Vercingetorix. But more on that later. Now, Vercingetorix and his men are not actually inside the town of Elysia yet. They're instead camped just outside of Elysia, on its eastern side, so the opposite side of the town from where the flat plain is. And though they aren't in the town itself, they're still on top of the Elysia Hill, so this gives them some protection from the Romans. And as added protection, they have dug out a ditch and built a six-foot wall in front of their forces to make any Roman assault more difficult. And according to Caesar... Vercingetorix has 80,000 infantry in total, plus cavalry with him. And this force, if these numbers are accurate, alone it outnumbers Caesar's force by a significant margin. Caesar has anywhere from 35 to 40,000 legionaries, plus an unknown number of auxiliaries. So the Gauls, right from the get-go, outnumber the Romans by 40 to 45,000 men, which means that Vercingetorix essentially has double the number of men as the Romans do, or at least close to it. On top of this, as we've said, they have a strong defensible position. Now, Caesar looks at all of this and decides that Elysia can't be taken by storm, at least not without significant casualties for his army, which he's not willing to sustain. 
But Caesar also realizes that Vercingetorix's superior numbers and position can easily be turned against him. 80,000 men are a lot of mouths to feed. And that doesn't even count the people of Elysia, the Mandubii, who also need to eat. So if Caesar can wall the Gauls in on their hilltop fortress, he can starve them out. That's the whole idea behind circumvallating Elysia. Cut them off from provisions and prevent them from escaping. So as we've said, Caesar sets his men to building a massive set of fortifications around the entirety of the Elysia Hill. And these initial fortifications, when complete, because they take time to complete, will stretch 10 to 11 miles long and will contain 23 forts which Caesar garrisons with soldiers in addition to several larger camps where the soldiers can rest. But the building of these fortifications starts not with walls or ramparts, but with ditches. Caesar has his men dig a 20-foot-wide, straight-sided ditch stretching across the plain from river to river. And the purpose of this ditch is to slow down any Gallic attack coming from Elysia, and thus to protect his legionaries as they work on these fortifications. Now, 400 paces or 130 yards back from this first ditch is where the Romans start building their main defenses. And again, they start with ditches. They dig two 15-feet-wide parallel ditches and divert water from the streams to flood the inner of these two ditches. Now they have a sort of moat. And behind these twin ditches, the Romans build an earthen rampart 12 feet tall. On top of this rampart, they build parapets to protect the soldiers guarding the rampart. They also add stakes to the part of the rampart where it connects to the parapet to further slow down any enemy attacks. And every 80 feet along the rampart, Caesar has his men build a tower. All of this is hard manual labor, and it doesn't come together overnight. This gives Vercingetorix plenty of chances to launch attacks on the soldiers while they're building the siege works. In the first of these attacks, Vercingetorix sends his cavalry. Caesar deploys his auxiliary cavalry to confront them, and both sides meet in the plain outside of Elysia. The fighting is fierce, and Vercingetorix's Gauls are getting the better of Caesar's auxiliaries. But then, Caesar forms up some of his infantry before the Roman camp, and deploys his ferocious German cavalry into battle. Only then, with the deployment of the German cavalry, are the Gauls routed. And as the Gallic cavalry flees, the Germans follow hot on their heels. At the gates of the Gallic camp outside of Elysia, a bottleneck of Gauls forms. Caesar says the Gauls were crunched into a heap at their own gate, which they had made too narrow. Meanwhile, the fearless and intrepid Germans aren't slowing down. They chase the Gauls right up to the fortifications that protect the Gallic camp. In the commentaries, Caesar writes, quote, The Germans pursued them eagerly, right up to their ditch and wall. Massive slaughter ensued, and some of the Gauls abandoned their horses and tried to cross the ditch and climb over the wall. End quote. The Gauls are now climbing over their own walls 
to get into their own camp. Meanwhile, the Gauls inside the camp aren't even sure what's happening. They think a Roman assault is imminent, so they sound the call to arms. At the same time, some of the more terrified Gauls start forcing their way into the town of Elysia. Vercingetorix ends up having to order the gates to be shut in fear that his whole camp might empty out and flee into the town. In the end, Caesar writes, quote, After killing many and capturing a number of horses, the Germans withdrew. End quote. These Germans may have shown up for war on laughably small ponies, but they're proving to be worth their weight in gold, and they aren't finished yet. Now at this point, Vercingetorix comes to the conclusion that a siege is inevitable. And in a siege, horses really won't do you much good, outside of maybe being food. So Vercingetorix sends his cavalry away from Elysia in the dead of night before Caesar and the Romans are able to complete their circumvallation of Elysia. But before they leave, Vercingetorix orders each of the cavalrymen to ride to his own tribe and there recruit every man able and of age to bear arms. Vercingetorix is banking on gathering a relief force to lift the siege. Vercingetorix then issues orders for all the Gallic grain in Elysia to be sent to him. Anyone who disobeys this order receives the death penalty. Caesar says in total Vercingetorix had enough food to last them 30 days, though by rationing this food, they could make it last longer. The Gauls also have a large number of livestock, which they had seized from the poor Mandubii tribe of Elysia. Flashback to Julius Caesar and the Romans, and they are industriously working on their fortifications. Of course, all of this requires wood for construction and food to fuel the men doing all of this back-breaking labor. To gather these commodities, the Romans have to send part of their army to venture out into the surrounding countryside. And these men had to go considerable distances from the Roman fortifications to find the required timber and food. Of course, this divides the Roman army. And the Gauls aren't just sitting on their hands. They're periodically launching attacks against the new Roman fortifications and the men building them. And since the Roman forces are split between foraging and construction, these attacks begin to concern Caesar. So he decides to add to the already considerable fortifications by having his men build a series of traps out in front of the ditches and the rampart. Famously, Caesar's legionaries, in good spirits, give each variety of trap a sort of ironic and loving nickname. They dig a series of five-foot-deep ditches, which they fill with sharpened stakes. These the legionaries nickname gravestones, or marker stones. Latin has the same word for both boundary marker and gravestone, so it depends on how you translate it. Next, a series of three-foot-deep holes are dug, which grow narrower the deeper they get, and into these the Romans anchor stakes as thick as a man's thigh. They then cover these traps with twigs and brushwood to camouflage them. These traps they nicknamed lilies, as the men felt that they resembled the lily flower, and it's just great dark humor to call a trap meant to kill and maim a pleasant name like lily. Finally, a series of logs, a foot long each, 
are buried into the earth and covered in iron hooks. The legionaries spread these logs everywhere and nicknamed them spurs. All of these fortifications and traps are designed to allow a small number of men to fend off a much larger force. Now, Caesar is well aware that the Gauls are gathering a relief force to come and attack the Romans from behind and to lift the siege. So put yourself in Julius Caesar's shoes here. What are your options? You can abandon the siege and fight the Gauls at a different time in a different place. After all, we saw Caesar abandon Gergovia when he feared being surrounded there. And oftentimes in the Gallic Wars, both armies have spent considerable time trying to outmaneuver each other and gain a terrain advantage. Or, I suppose Caesar could also order an assault and try to end the siege before the relief army arrives. Though in the commentary, Caesar says that he had already ruled this option out as being too dangerous to his men. Another option Caesar has is to abandon the siege and instead race to stamp out the relief force before it gets a chance to gather into a united army. We've seen Caesar do this before as well. In the end, Caesar doesn't do any of these things. In one of the boldest and most bizarre military decisions in all of history, Caesar decides to proceed with the siege while being besieged himself. He will build a second, even longer set of fortifications with all the same defenses as the first, but this time facing outward to defend against the Gallic Relief Army. The Roman army will, for the most part, occupy the terrain between these two lines of fortification. And I say this decision is bizarre because, one, I don't know another battle like this in history. Now, caveat, history is long and a similar battle may exist I haven't studied yet, but at the very least, building a double ring of fortifications around a city to besiege the city while a relief army besieges you is rare, especially when you consider that this was a deliberate decision, not a place that Caesar found himself trapped in. The second reason, and this depends somewhat on if you believe Caesar's estimates of the Gallic numbers, which we'll get into in just a minute, but if you believe Caesar's numbers, Caesar will be besieging a force twice the size of his own while being besieged by a force potentially as large as six or even seven times the size of his own army. That means in total, Caesar is outnumbered anywhere from seven, eight, or even nine to one by the Gauls. Again, that's if you take Caesar's numbers at face value. But even if you don't accept Caesar's numbers, it still may have been the case that both Gallic armies outnumbered the Romans, just not by the high margin Caesar claims. And in which case, it's still a remarkable decision he makes to make a stand against two armies on either side of him, both of which outnumber his own army. And the third reason I say this decision is both bizarre and bold is because Caesar will be trapping himself between a hammer and an anvil. Now, I'm just an armchair general, but I would think that most generals would not willingly allow themselves to be trapped like that. But Caesar is relying on these incredible fortifications the Romans are building to make up for the fact that he is going to be surrounded and outnumbered to an astounding degree. And of course, 
If you do something bizarre or against the normal rules and you pull it off spectacularly, well, they call that genius. By the time the Romans are finished, the second set of ramparts to keep out the relief force, known as contravallation, will be 13 to 14 miles long. This means in total the Roman ramparts are up to 25 miles long. Think about how much work that is and how quickly it needs to be done. And then you have all the ditches and all the traps and all the towers to build. It's truly an astounding feat of ancient military engineering and an astounding feat of hard, back-breaking manual labor by the Roman soldiers. Scholar Carolyn Hammond writes in her footnotes on Caesar's commentaries, quote, The construction of siege works by a besieging army was standard practice. The scale of circumvallation at Elysia, however, was so astonishing as to become the classic proof of Caesar's mastery of the art of generalship and command. End quote. If you want to get a better idea of these siege works, the museum at Elysia has an excellent recreation of them. And in my video exploring the battlefield of Elysia, I filmed these ramparts for you, along with the traps, towers, ditches, and more, so that you can really get a visual understanding of what these defenses looked like. I highly recommend you check it out, and again, the link to that video is in the show notes of this episode. I also have a clip posted to our Instagram and Facebook pages where I filmed myself at the site of the fortifications discussing them. All of this is to give you a visual of the fortifications that Caesar and the Romans built. Now, as all of this construction of fortifications is underway by the Romans, Gaul is busy gathering a massive relief force. Caesar says that they had decided against Vercingetorix's order that every able-bodied man gather for the army. They felt an army of this size would be too chaotic and unwieldy, not to mention difficult to feed. Nevertheless, Caesar claims that the Gauls raised 240,000 infantry, plus 8,000 cavalry. And if true, that is a juggernaut of an ancient army. And I say, if true, because there's a lot of debate on this, or at least a lot of historians who doubt Caesar's claim. They say he is either exaggerating the numbers of the enemy to boost his prestige in winning this battle, or if they're being more kind, they simply say that he may have had poor information to work with on his estimates of enemy numbers. Now, Caesar does list out the numbers of men contributed by each tribe, listing some 44 tribes. It's a surprisingly detailed list. And historian Adrian Goldsworthy points out that the number of men Caesar lists for each tribe is consistent with other numbers Caesar provides throughout the commentaries. Goldsworthy also points out that this may mean nothing more than that Caesar was consistent in his exaggerations of enemy troop numbers. Certainly, Napoleon Bonaparte was suspicious of Caesar's numbers in this battle. Historian Adrian Goldsworthy says Napoleon didn't think the Gauls outnumbered the Romans at all. And if that's true, then the Siege of Elysia becomes a drastically different story. However, as I understand it, Napoleon was basing his opinion on his considerable expertise and experience in war, not on any archaeological or primary source records that proved Caesar's numbers were exaggerated. And Napoleon may have dismissed Caesar's numbers so easily because he himself was a habitual offender of exaggerating numbers throughout his life. 
There is a funny story of Napoleon holding a plebiscite to establish a hereditary empire. At the time, Napoleon was only the first consul of France. And Napoleon won this plebiscite. But after the vote, one of his ministers showed him the results from both the French army and the French navy's votes. And Napoleon looked at the numbers and immediately started writing in new numbers, over tripling the actual number of votes. So, of course, a guy like Napoleon would simply assume Caesar's numbers are exaggerated because that's what he himself would do. Well, whatever you believe about the numbers Caesar lists, and even if they are exaggerated, historian Adrian Goldsworthy writes that the Gallic Relief Force would have been one of the largest Gallic armies ever to take the field. And after choosing leaders, this relief army then lumbers its way towards Elysia. Flashback to Vercingetorix and his men inside Elysia, and things are far from ideal. The date by which the relief army was supposed to show up has come and gone. Cut off from the world as they are, the Gauls in Elysia can't even be sure a relief army is coming for them. And by this time, roughly 30 days have passed since the siege began. Which means the Gauls are running very low on food. In fact, Caesar says that all of their grain was gone by this time. So they call a meeting to discuss and debate their options. Various ideas are put forward, from surrender to a sortie out to attack the Roman lines before the Gauls grow too weak from hunger. Finally, an Avernian noble named Critognatus gets up and puts forward a radical idea. And keep in mind, this whole story is related to us by Julius Caesar, who obviously was not in Elysia to hear any of this so take it for what it's worth. Well, according to Caesar, first Critognatus says that he won't even bother to address the men who call shameful slavery by the name of surrender. He says these men aren't worthy of being treated as citizens of Gaul. Instead, he addresses his words to the men pushing for a sortie out to fight the Romans. Critognatus says that this suggestion to die fighting like this is not courage but a weak spirit, unable to endure trifling hardships. And according to Caesar, Critognatus then says, quote, It is easier to find men ready and willing to face death than men prepared to endure suffering with forbearance. End quote. Now this is a very famous quote which you'll see attributed to Caesar all over the internet. And as best as I can tell, even though Caesar puts these words in the mouth of Critognatus, since Caesar wasn't there, and Caesar is the one who actually wrote the words, they get attributed to Julius Caesar, which is probably fair. And if you don't recognize that quote, a more familiar version of the quote that flows better in English goes something like this. Quote, It is easier to find men who will volunteer to die than to find those who are willing to endure pain with patience. End quote. Critognatus then admonishes his fellow Gauls for doubting the relief force. He tells them to look at the Romans working day and night on those outer fortifications. They aren't doing all that work for fun. A relief army must be coming. Then he gets to the radical part of his speech. He argues against surrender or authority. Instead, he argues for cannibalism. Specifically, he argues that they should eat the elderly. 
He tells his fellow Gauls that their main objective should be to stay alive until the relief force comes so that they can aid the relief force in the fight against the Romans. Eating the elderly will provide them food until the relief army arrives. And Critognatus even cites historical precedents for Gauls eating the elderly, saying that they had done it a generation before when fighting the Teutones and the Cimbri. And if this speech really did happen, I imagine when Critognatus finished speaking, there would have just been this shocked, awkward silence. Like, is this guy for real? What a hardo. He wants to eat the old people? <laughs> In the end, the Gauls decide on an act that is nearly as horrible as the cannibalism idea. They decide to expel all of the useless mouths from the city. The women, the children, the elderly, and the infirmed. The way the warriors saw it, these people were just eating up food and couldn't contribute to the fighting, so best to expel them to preserve what little food they have left. And this is why earlier in the episode I said it was a tragic twist of fate for the people of Elysia that Vercingetorix and his men retreated to their town. Now these poor people, who took Vercingetorix and his men in, are being thrown out of their own homes. And Vercingetorix's hope in expelling these people is that they will go to the Roman lines, and Caesar will either have to let them through or take them in as slaves, in which case they would eat up his food rather than Vercingetorix's food. The expelled people then walk down to the Roman ramparts, and with tears in their eyes, they beg and plead to be accepted as slaves and given food. In an act of almost equal ruthlessness, Caesar refuses to admit them, and instead sets guards on the rampart. Caesar himself is low on food. He had his men collect enough food for 30 days early on in the siege, so they have to be getting low on food themselves. On top of this, Caesar doesn't want to let Vercingetorix off the hook that easily. He expects that if he refuses these people... Vercingetorix will eventually be shamed into taking them back into Elysia, and then they will be eating up his supplies again. Caesar's refusal to take these refugees in starts a battle of ruthless wills between Vercingetorix and Julius Caesar. In the end, neither man will give in, and these wretched people will die of starvation languishing between Elysia and the Roman lines. And that is where we'll end our episode today with the massive Gallic relief force slowly lumbering its way towards Elysia and the poor Mandubii starving to death in no man's land. In our next episode, the Gauls will attack the Roman fortifications from both directions, pushing Caesar and the Romans to their absolute limits in the dramatic climax of the Battle of Elysia. But before we go, I want to give a shout-out to Gaius, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, either Deja or Deja Lagustus, or at least that's the name he's listed on in his generous PayPal contribution to the March of History. So I say with all sincerity, thank you, Lagustus, for your generous contribution. It's you and people like yourself who are the reason this podcast can continue, and I cannot thank you enough. And Augustus brought up a good point to me. He wasn't sure if he could pay via credit card. I want to let all of you know that you can go to PayPal and make a one-time donation or contribution, however you want to see it, 
or a tip to the March of History. So it's easy. You can go in, enter in your credit card, and easily send money to the March of History. I've also set up a Venmo while I'm working on it, but it should be up and set up by the time this episode comes out. You can find the link to that Venmo in the show notes of this episode. Venmo, what a pain. They require more documentation than PayPal or Patreon. I mean, I used to be a business banker, and they require as much documentation from me as a business banking account does. It's ridiculous. But little by little, I'm getting Venmo set up. So by the time this episode comes out, it should be up and running. It's an easy way for anyone to send even just a dollar an episode. If you enjoy this episode on Lysia, Venmo over a dollar is a tip, and it would be beyond appreciated by me. I promise you. And of course, thank you to all of our patrons, the rock on which this podcast is built. Ray, Giancarlo, Peggy, Carrie, Scott, Laurie, Liga, and Dave, all of you are heroes to me, and I say thank you, and I know I say that every episode, but I mean it every single episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And on another note, I have an idea on how we can all work together to grow the March of History. And it is growing. We're hitting record numbers each month in, in downloads. If all of you avid listeners out there share the March of History with just one person you know, the podcast will grow dramatically in listeners. This will make all the difference in the world. And if we can get every fan to share the podcast with just one new person each time an episode comes out, this podcast will take off to the moon. I mean, we only put out an episode once every two weeks, so it's not asking you to to hit up three people a week or somebody every single week. It's only twice a month. I think it's doable, and I would be endlessly appreciative to all of you if you would do that. Finally, we have our ending quote. We left off on a pretty sad note with the people of Elysia starving in no man's land, so I'll leave you with something more uplifting in our end quote. Quote, Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. End quote. And that is a quote by Winston Churchill. Thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Trevor, and I will talk to you at our next episode in the exciting conclusion to the Battle of Elysia.